Again, our Father, we come, we come expectantly. As your children, we anticipate your work among us and for your grace to be operative within us. We worship you because you are the Father of lights in whom there is no variation nor shadow due to change. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever, a God who is above time and space, a God who is above all succession of time, a God who is above the very created order, and the one who orchestrates all things according to your perfect plans and purposes. And so we worship you, we trust in you, we rest in you, and we pray that as again we study together, that you would give us understanding, help us also in our application. And yet again we ask that it would be for our good and your glory. In the matchless name of the Lord Jesus we pray. Amen. A couple of things. Number one, uh, speaking at nine o'clock in the morning and listening at nine o'clock in the morning, very different from speaking and listening at 1.30 in the afternoon after lunch. So you have my permission. If you notice someone around you nodding off, you have my permission to pinch them. Assuming you know the person, all right? If you don't know the person, keep your hands to yourself. We don't want any of those issues here. But if you know the person, don't feel free just to give a little well-planted elbow, a little tug on whatever just to keep us all in the present, right? And if you do need to get up and just do a lap at some point, that's fine. You're among friends. No one will judge you because you're in for... I mean, it's a long haul now between now and 5 o'clock, isn't it? Uh, second thing I meant to mention, I meant to mention this this morning. I, I briefly uh, made mention of the fact that I, I professor up at Southwestern, I also intended to, to mention for your prayer... I'm serving as a preaching pastor at a little revitalization here in town. How many of you are from Granbury? A few of you. So Granbury, if you go like northwest toward Weatherford, make a sense, make sense to people. There was a little church up there that was a couple months away from closing its doors. And, uh, I and a few other people have been helping out since April. Fairview Baptist Church for those who are local. And certainly would covet your prayers for that. And um, big work in progress. And certainly looking to the Lord in dependence and praying that He blesses us from from on high. So remember us in your prayers, and that uh, the Lord would do would perform a good and a lasting work among us. Our theme, our topic, our business this afternoon. There it is on the screen: rejoicing in suffering. We'll get to the notes in just a moment. Let me set the stage. Let me make a few preparatory remarks. And hopefully this will draw you in, arrest your attention, and then away we go. Uh, Do you realize you are only saved in part? Let that sink in. You're only partly saved. We are saved, yes, amen, but we're awaiting salvation. We're redeemed, but we're actually awaiting redemption. We're adopted, and yet we are awaiting adoption. It is all ours because we have, haven't, we have entered into it by right through the Lord Jesus. But we have not yet entered into the full enjoyment of it. Until then, we are on a journey. 
And it is a journey fraught with joys and sorrows, pleasant valleys and perilous mountains, encouraging gains and crippling losses. And at many points, junctures along this journey, at times we find ourselves asking, where is God when? Fill in the blank. It is exceedingly difficult. Let's not pretend otherwise. It is exceedingly difficult many, 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 many times to see God's fingerprints in what is happening around us and to us. And we need to say it from the outset. Uh, we are not his privy counselors. And our God, his ways are not our ways. His judgments are not our judgments. And it was John Calvin who was preaching through the book of Job in Geneva centuries ago. And I don't know how many sermons he had preached before he was banished from the city for a couple of years. I think he preached maybe 40 sermons. And upon being asked to come back a couple of years later, he picked up right where he left off and finished his series of 60, 70 sermons on the book of Job. And basically by the end, his one thesis, the thing he was trying to get across to his people is simply this. We must tr learn to trust in a God who is incomprehensible. And that's the book of Job. An incomprehensible God whose ways are not our ways and whose judgments are not our judgments. And many times we find ourselves asking this question, where is God when? Don't feel poorly or badly for asking it. It is a valid question. David asked it. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? Job asked it. Oh, that I knew where, where I might find him, that I might even come to his seat. I would present my case before him. Asaph asked it. Do not keep silent, O oh God. Do not hold your peace and do not be still. And Habakkuk asked, O oh Lord, how long shall I cry? And you will not hear. It is a valid question. It is a painful question. It's a terrible feeling when someone forgets us. It makes us feel small and insignificant. Far worse feeling when someone hides from us. Forgetting is an oversight, whereas hiding is a deliberate act. What does it mean when God seems far away in times of trouble? His apparent neglect is disturbing because He is our Heavenly Father and we expect Him to act accordingly. It is a painful question. And it is thirdly a difficult question. Simplistic answers won't do. God has a wonderful plan for your life. Unbelievably simplistic. Childish answers won't do. Smile, God loves you. Are mindless cliches all we have to offer the sufferer? We need a thoughtful answer to the dilemma that arises when God seems to hide himself and we find ourselves in the midst of suffering and in the words of the psalmist where we were but a few moments ago, we feel like we have become a wineskin in the smoke. Thousands of years between the psalmist and us. Wineskin in the smoke. What's he talking about? Well, this idea of a wineskin hanging too close to the fire, blazing, roaring within the home, and the smoke and the heat consistently beating upon that wineskin until eventually it dries out, becomes darkened, becomes cracked, and is worthless and good for nothing except to be what? Thrown out. I feel like a 
a wineskin. A wineskin in the smoke. Now here's what I am assuming, and here's how we're going to proceed this afternoon. I am assuming, and I don't mean to put anyone on the spot or make anyone feel uncomfortable, but I am assuming there is one, at least one person here right now, that's you. You're there. The psalm, you could have written those words. And that is exactly how you feel. The grief, it could be health-related. It could be family disarray. It could be the loss of a loved one, dash, dreams, fill in the blank. It actually doesn't really matter the cause. I'm referring more to the state or the condition that you are in. And so what we're going to do is very simple. I'm going to seek to, uh, to give you, by God's grace, some perspective. It's going to, as if I'm just speaking to one of you and say, this is what you and I need um, every day, each and every day, especially when we're in the midst of suffering. We need perspective. We need to be able to see things, view things through a, a biblical lens, right? And although the grief will not go away. The problem itself, there may be no immediate resolution. This perspective will give us what we need, at the very least, to glorify God by continuing to rejoice in Him, even in the midst of that suffering. So I'm going to speak to you, and my goal is very simple. And as the rest of you listen in, uh, this would be our goal in grief counseling then. Or when you're sitting across from you know someone in the living room who has just buried a, a loved one or has just received the, the, the dreaded notification from the doctor's office and the tears are flowing and the grief is palpable and the situation is almost unbearable and we want to guard our words, we want to measure our response, we want to weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice and yet uh, we should have certain things in our minds um, we, we know that what we need in those moments is a lively hope of the world to come, don't we? For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Get real, please. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. How's that possible? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. We need a lively hope of the world to come to deal with present circumstances and conditions. We need a lively assurance of God's love. We're going to get to that in the context of Ephesians 3 eventually and what it is to abound in God's love. I am sure, writes Paul in Romans 8, Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What does that mean? We need a lively assurance of God's love. We need a lively faith in the truth of God's Word. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, you accepted it, not as the Word of men, but as what it really is. The Word of God which is at work in you believers. And so if you want to hear God's voice, what do you do? Read the Bible. If you want to hear God speak audibly, what do you do? Read it out loud. Amen. That's how you hear God speak. 
the Word, the Spirit of God speaking through the Word of God, whereby that Word becomes lively. And it creates this faith and confidence in us. And we need a lively contempt for this world. For me, me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And so that's, that's the goal. I mean, we could say more. I think we'll limit ourselves to those four. I think it's sufficient, right? Then when we think of those moments when we feel like a wineskin, that is the great need that stands before us, cultivating the Christian graces, virtues. Firstly, a lively hope of the world to come. A lively assurance, unequivocal, of God's love. A lively faith in the truth of God's Word. And a lively contempt for this world. And lastly, a lively conviction of God's sovereign rule. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. So there's our goal. There's our desire. To have these graces stirred so that even in the midst of suffering, grief, sorrow, disillusionment, disenchantment, disappointment, whatever the case may be, Uh, we are still able to honor God by rejoicing in Him and in our great salvation. So we're clear so far? And so I'm speaking to someone, you know, someone here. And so, so how? Okay, that's, that's what we need, that's what I need, that's what you need right now. So how? Um, how does that happen? How does God stir? Those graces within hope and faith and conviction and assurance. And um, how does that come about? And so the notes, you've got them there. I'm going to walk you through basically a five-fold answer. And again, I'm not suggesting that these are five steps you walk through in grief counseling. That's not my point. What I am suggesting, what I am affirming is this. These are five areas we need to be very comfortable with, familiar with, and that these are the goods, if you like, that we need to be delivering to people. The truth that needs to be spoken into their lives, commensurate with their need, according to their grief and where they're at in that grief process. And so the five, I want to walk you through them and again suggest homework, that kind of idea, and hopefully give you enough to run with. Okay? So you're clear? So here's the first thing. Whoever you are, feeling like a wineskin, I say to you, above all else, what you really, really desperately need is a renewed appreciation for the beauty of the Lord Jesus. That's what you need. A renewed appreciation for the beauty of the Lord Jesus. And I think Isaiah 53, verse 3, is just a wonderful starting point. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That's a tremendous statement. I'm not sure we appreciate it to the full extent that we ought. I mean, just break it down into its simple parts. He's a man, body and soul, just like you and me. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. I mean, he knows everything about temptation, betrayal, injustice, abandonment, abuse, sorrow, weariness, hunger, loneliness, but a tip of the iceberg 
a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And so I think that's extremely important, the beauty of the Lord Jesus. And again, making sure it's front and center in our lives. And some things I might, I might do with someone is, uh, is pray together. Ephesians 3.19, right? There Paul is uh, celebrating God's love. It, and he tells us there that it is a, a love that surpasses knowledge. It is a love that is boundless. It is immeasurable. And he prays that we might know the love of Christ, that we might be filled up with all of God's fullness, the fullness of God. And so that's something I would pray with the individual. I would pray regularly, repeatedly, consistently, that God would help us to abide in his love and really understand the love of the Father. And that love he set upon us before the foundation of the world, the love of the Son in giving himself and ransoming us from sin, the love of the Spirit, that love which has now been poured out within our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us, as Paul says in his epistle to the Romans. Um, you know, a great analogy. I love this one. I use it a lot in sermon, by way of a sermon illustration. That's Niagara Falls. My wife Allison grew up about 15 minutes from there. And a uh, beautiful place. And there's a story told of an art exhibition going back pre-World War II that was taking place on the Canadian side, a little hamlet there, a little village known as Niagara-on-the-Lake. And one of the local artists, he went down with his oil painting of Niagara Falls and presented it and said, yeah, you can show this in the exhibition. Turned around and went home. He forgot to mention the title. And so whoever was organizing, convening the art exhibition, they had this brilliant idea insofar as the title is concerned. And they wrote on this little piece of paper under this beautiful oil painting of Niagara Falls, more to follow. Now, that's smart. More to follow. It's a wonderful depiction of God's love, isn't it? More to follow. Boundless. And this is the point we must make. This is the truth we must proclaim. This is the, the truth that we must celebrate in the midst of suffering. The love of the Father, the love of the Son, the love of the Holy Spirit and what it means to know the love of God, and then to ask, oh, other passages we can read, sure, you know them all, lots of them, but really be asking this question, how does this apply to us? What does this mean to you as you sit there right now? What does God's love mean to you? And how should God's love encourage you, even in the midst of difficulty, and even in the midst of trying, trying circumstances? Um, how does the love of God Stir your love, your faith, your hope, your conviction, your assurance, your resolution, your steadfastness. There's a beautiful little prayer. Is it 2 Thessalonians 3, 5? I think it is somewhere in 2 Thessalonians. I might have to read the whole book to find it. The prayer is simply this. Paul prays just a pass away, just a passing phrase. He asks, he says, May God direct your hearts to what? His love and to the steadfastness of Christ. Oh, that's where we need to be when it comes to grief counseling, is really emphasizing, stressing repeatedly the love of God, as, and that accentuates then the beauty of the Lord Jesus. The second truth we might need to spend a lot of time on is the incomprehensibility of God. 
So Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable are His ways. And this might be significant in grief counseling. It might be significant for someone sitting here right now. Because whatever you've been going through, the question that just keeps resonating in your mind, and the question that has you awake at night, And the thing you can't let go of and you won't let go of is the question, why? Why did this happen? Why did God permit this? Why did God in His sovereign will, dare I say, ordain this? Why, why, why? And this is exceedingly difficult. It takes us back to John Calvin's sermons on the book of Job. This is... Exceedingly, I don't know how else to word it, difficult to learn that uh, our God is ultimately incomprehensible and far more often than we care to admit in life, we do not know the reason why God does what He does. We don't know why things happen. Let's not pretend otherwise. Sometimes we walk into these situations and we start to come up with 12, 13 reasons why this has happened. At times, probably more often than not, we're better off just holding our peace because His ways are not our ways. His judgments are not our judgments. It was John Bunyan. John Bunyan years ago, I mean, he orphaned, fairly young age, married, his daughter born blind, uh, arrested, thrown in prison, It was his second wife when she heard he'd been arrested. She miscarried. I mean, it was just trial after trial, ordeal after ordeal. And uh, there he is in in prison, a prison cell. And he's got an eight-year-old daughter blind at home. His second wife, his first wife had passed away. And all this stuff going on. And he echoed Calvin's sentiment about a hundred years before Bunyan and simply stated, it's in his, his work, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, if, if ever I am to suffer rightly, I must learn to trust in a God who is incomprehensible. You'll be learning that the rest of your life. I'll be learning that the rest of my life. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. And so we don't focus on why. In suffering, we focus on who. That's the question. The who, not the why. We focus on our God, a God who knows all things. A God who knows all things past, present, and future. A God who knows all things possible. And a God who uses His limitless knowledge to attain the best results by the best means. Right there in your notes, our knowledge of God is severely limited, whereas God's knowledge is limitless. We judge circumstances according to our finite perspective. But God knows all things by one infinite act of understanding. Well, any teach God knowledge. I've mentioned the book of Job a couple of times. There's a great homework assignment, a little exercise we could do with someone who's grieving. Is read those chapters in Job 38, 39, 40, 41. Great portion of Scripture. Job lost his entire family, save his wife, and uh, all of his possessions, his belongings, wiped out. 
And then you come to these chapters, 38, 39, 40, 41, read through them. And there are, to my reckoning anyway, 42 questions in those chapters. And God directs all 42 questions to Job. And it's interesting to identify them and categorize them. And as you do that, uh, you really get a sense for what God is doing in and through those questions. I mean, basically, he's communicating to him, Job, where were you when I set the foundations of the world in place? Where were you? Where were you? Again, where were you? Who are you? And there is this series of questions reminding Job of who he is and his very finite, limited, bounded understanding in comparison to God's infinite, limitless, and boundless understanding. This is particularly important. I'm not saying in every grief counseling situation or for anyone here necessarily right now, this is something you have to do. Um, Every instance, no, 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 no. This has a place, this has a time, especially when we perceive that grief is giving way to bitterness or grief is giving place to venting and murmuring. This might be the place to go. To help with that, remember, perspective. And to identify for ourselves, identify for others, what is it I need to surrender to God? Uh, for some of us, it might be control. I, I was unable to control that situation, and I'm unable to control the fallout. Control! For some of us, it might be certainty and predictability as to the future, as to what's coming tomorrow. Uh, for others, it might be um, legalism and the entire idea, how dare God let that happen to me, to us. We're on his side. I've served him my whole life. I'm one of his people. He owes me. And there are all sorts of issues and questions that people can be working through in a grief context and this exercise might be entirely applicable and relevant for them, depending on what it is they are struggling with, the incomprehensibility of God. Somewhat closely associated to it, we went through this, it's all in the notes, is the mystery of God's providence. Romans 8:28, a verse that we love to rip out of its context and misapply. We know that for those who love God, there's a great qualifier. All things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Raises two obvious questions. Number one, what is the meaning of all things? Let's hear it. All things. Very good. Clever group. All things. Good, bad. Good providence, bad providence. Prosperity, adversity. The immediate context is adversity. Just prior to these verses, he's talking about suffering and Christians who suffer and anticipating glory. So that is what he chiefly has in view. The Christian suffering as he, her, lives here in this fallen world, anticipating the renovation of the cosmos, the restoration of all things, the redemption of the sons of God, the resurrection of our bodies. And yet the thing is what? Those all things are often like the internals of a watch. 
You get those big wheels going one way, small wheels, medium-sized wheels, all going in different directions, and levers and other stuff functioning in there. And to the untrained eye, the internal mechanism of that big, fat grandfather clock makes absolutely no sense. It looks like gibberish. How does this all work together to keep perfect time? But the point is, our God, whose ways are incomprehensible, our God who is sovereign over all things, our God from whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, works all things for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. The second obvious question, this is where people often get stumped, is this. Uh, what is the meaning of good? In your notes, I'll hide behind what I wrote there. Many people define good according to what they want instead of what they need. What makes them happy instead of what makes them holy. What's visible instead of what's invisible. What's temporal instead of what is eternal. They define good according to the interests of the flesh rather than the welfare of the soul. Paul defines himself as he always does in his epistles. If you want to know what he means, more often than not, just keep reading and he explains what he means. And so Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, God works all things together for good. And uh, those were called according to his purpose. What is this purpose? He immediately tells us in verses 29 and 30 that those whom God foreknew, what did he do? He predestined them. For what? A happy, clappy life. No, to be conformed to the image of his son. What is God's will for your life? It is your conformity to the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is it. That is God's design for us. And He has predestined us for that purpose. And those whom He predestined, He called. And those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He has justified, He has, past tense, because it's an absolute certainty it's going to happen, glorified. And so those whom He foreknew, He predestined them for a purpose. That purpose will come to fruition. Perfect conformity to Christ, their glorification. That is the good, going back into verse 28, that is in view. All things work together for good. What good? That good, he tells us in verses 29 and 30. It is God's work in us to make us more like His beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you might need to go to... Let's read these texts. Let's take the time. Flip over well-known, well-worn probably in your Bible or on your iPhone if that's possible. Romans 5, look at verses 3 through 5. Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Hence the title for this session, Rejoicing in Suffering. Now, careful, check that. He is not suggesting that suffering is the cause of his rejoicing. That would be sick. That's not what he is saying. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, not because of the suffering itself, but because we know what God is accomplishing through that suffering. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. 
And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Something similar, slightly different terms. James chapter 1, also exceedingly helpful. James 1 verse 2, count it all joy. Count it all joy. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, And again, like Paul, he is not suggesting that the trials themselves are a cause of joy. That is not the road he's going down. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For, here's why you should count it all joy. For you know, just as Paul says, you know, James says, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And if any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. And so I would work through those texts, and I would define terms, and I would get right down into the the weeds, so to speak, the finer points, and uh, work through, well, how is God maybe producing this in my life, your life? How is God using these circumstances to glorify Him and bring about greater conformity to Christ? I would really latch on to the fifth verse. It's also another verse that we often lift out of its context, but it has a very specific context. He's just spoken of falling into trials of various kinds. If any of you lacks wisdom, wisdom for what? Wisdom for dealing with those trials. When you fall into them, and you don't understand them, and you may not even be able to see your way out of them, and you can't see the start from the finish and your way forward, you're in that dark valley or dark tunnel. If any of you lacks wisdom, it's a promise. You can pray this and ask God for what? Wisdom. And this is a beautiful statement. Who gives generously. He gives bountifully this wisdom to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Without reproach, that's stellar. You know, there you are at home and your neighbor comes around on a Saturday morning at 9 o'clock, can I borrow your shovel? Sure. Half an hour later, can I borrow your rake? Sure. I wish you brought back my shovel, but okay, here's the rake. Half hour later, can I borrow your lawnmower? Half hour later, can I borrow your hose? Half hour later, it's something else. By this point, you are what? Fed up. And maybe not to his face, but certainly to your wife, your spouse back in the house, you begin to reproach your neighbor. This is beautiful. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach. You can never exhaust him. He'll never get fed up of hearing you pray this. And he will never be contemptuous towards you or disregard your prayer. If you lack wisdom right now, ask God. And he will give it to you generously. It's a promise. It's an absolute promise. Can I say it? Name it and claim it. (laughs) Properly used, right there. Properly used. I maybe shouldn't have said that. Someone could take that, isolate it, put it on social media, and my ship would be sunk. But anyway, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And so someone who is grieving doesn't know the way forward. There's what you're praying. How do I pray for this person? How do I pray with this person? That's what you pray with this person. Right there. And you break it down. Uh, What specifically do we need? 
And uh, how do we anticipate God answering this prayer request? And then take note, take note as time passes by how God has imparted wisdom supernaturally, bountifully, and generously as we call upon our Heavenly Father. Give biblical examples of some of those things like endurance. That's a great study. So endurance, steadfastness. Go back to the Old Testament. Have a little competition. Some Bible characters really exemplified these things. And find the chapter and verse and ask yourself why. Why was Joseph able to manifest such steadfastness? And why was Naomi, despite some of the words that came out of her mouth, why did she remain so faithful and unwavering in her commitment to God? That's a very fruitful exercise. And then how is God producing, cultivating these in your life? Here's the fourth truth we would want to spend time on, the certainty of glory. And at times this is all we've got. At times this is front and center. The certainty of glory I consider. It says Paul in Romans 8.18 that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So even right now where you sit, don't write it out, but just take a mental note of what you're going through and the sufferings of the present time. All right? Starting to manufacture a list. And then hear what Paul has the audacity to say. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He, you know, he could have said, look, I, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, um, you know, they, they pale in comparison because the glory that is to be revealed to us will be a hundred times better. Or the glory that will be revealed to us will be a thousand times better. Or even better yet, the glory that is to be revealed to us will be 10,000 times better than present suffering. It's not what he says. He, he deduces as he uses his mind and considers this. So consider, that's contemplation. He concludes that the sufferings of the present are not even worth comparing. You can't even begin to compare the two. This is perspective. Perspective. Those are the Himalayas. I've actually seen the Himalayas. I had the blessing of seeing them. Whew, 2006, 2007, I was teaching at a Bible school in Kathmandu. And each morning I would have breakfast on the lawn just outside the hotel where I was staying. And for about the first nine, ten days, haze, cloud cover. You couldn't see anything. And then on this particular morning, the haze just dissipated, disappeared. And there were the Himalayas in all their grandeur and glory. Unbelievably overwhelming. Make you feel so small as they occupy everything around you and completely take up the sky above. Awesome in their majesty. And then I remember thinking to myself, okay, if I were able to travel to the moon, and I looked back at the earth, what would the Himalayas look like? Indistinguishable from anything else. I think that's where Paul is pointing as in Romans 8.18. Uh, I consider that the sufferings of this present time 
are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now be careful here. That does not mean, okay, well then I shouldn't suffer. That doesn't mean I should become a stoic, stiff upper lip, old man, just get on with it, no problem. Put your best foot forward. It doesn't mean that the suffering is minimized or that the suffering is somehow now unreal or I should feel guilty for suffering or sorrowing or grieving or really wrestling with God, where are you? That's not what Paul is saying. He acknowledges the suffering. I consider that the sufferings... He doesn't say, I don't consider that the present sufferings aren't real. No, these are present sufferings. These are real. And they're tangible. And they're grievous when we find ourselves in the midst of them. But please understand this perspective. They're not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so what it is to keep our eyes fixed upon the prize and cultivate biblical hope. God will. We have this absolute certainty, don't we, as Christians? God will remove us from trouble. Or, far more often, He will support us in trouble. And I'm convinced this is one of the chief ways in which He does that. It is by cultivating that lively hope within us. I am severely afflicted, says the psalmist. Give me life, O Lord, and teach me Your rules. Romans 15:13, great place to go. Pray. It's a prayer. Romans 15:13. Paul prays. May the God of hope. So where does hope come from? It comes from God. He's the source, the origin, the giver of hope. May the God of hope. Cause you, he says, with all joy, give you all joy and peace in believing. Believing what? Believing the gospel, believing the word of God, believing the promises of God. And so may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that by the power of the Holy Spirit you might abound in hope. Here's what we pray with people that God would cause us to abound. How is He going to cause us to abound? As we fix our faith upon His Word, His character, His works, His ways, His wonders, His promises. Who is the source and object of hope? Why is He the, the God of hope? Well, it's a m- reminder of His power, isn't it? His power over all things. It's a reminder again of His wisdom, of His knowledge, of His goodness. And what are the means by which He causes us to abound in hope? And then the fifth truth, how are we doing for time? Oh, very good. The fifth truth is this, the reality of adoption. Galatians 4, 6. Actually, you go back earlier in Galatians. It's a tremendous text. Beginning in verse 4, Paul says, When the fullness of time had come, fullness of time, God's plan of salvation, God sent forth His Son born of a woman, the incarnation, born under the law. To what? Redeem those who were under the law. Languishing under the law. Languishing under the curse of the law. So when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to rescue, to redeem, to deliver those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. So salvation has this like this two-sided coin, right? You have redemption on the one side, the negative, rescuing us from something. And on the other side, you have adoption, whereby He grants us that inheritance which our forefathers, Adam and Eve, lost. And because you are sons, He goes on to say in Galatians 4, 6, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, 
father. J.I. Packer describes the doctrine of adoption as the climax of the Bible. What it means to be the adopted sons, children of God, whereby he takes radically depraved sinners into his family and claims them as his sons. And just this wonderful realization, and it calls for concentrated celebration, that the spirit of slavery has given way to the spirit of adoption, that now as his children, God is no longer a terrifying God, but a loving God, no longer a condemning God, but a pardoning God, no longer a threatening God, but an accepting God. And this wonderful truth, he goes on still in Galatians 4, we are the sons of God. And then he adds this phrase, which is beautiful. We, as the children of God, are known by God. It should strike you as strange immediately, because our knee-jerk reaction should be what? Well, doesn't God know everyone? He's all-knowing. He's omniscient. Yes, he knows everyone, but that's not what Paul is talking about in this verse. We're known by God. He knows his own. There's a difference between factual knowledge and relational knowledge in Scripture. Yes, God knows everyone in the first sense, factually. He knows everyone who's ever lived. He knows everyone currently living, everyone who ever will live. That's not what Paul is celebrating. He's celebrating this relational knowledge whereby he takes us, believers, into a special relationship with himself. And we become his children. He becomes our father. To be known by God is to be known as his adopted child. The Lord knows those who are his. So I'll tell you, when we're facing grief and the shadows are overwhelming us, and again, there is no light at the end, proverbial, at the end of that proverbial tunnel. This, this, this is an anchor. This is it in the midst of the storm. This is the anchor that will not give way. This is the rock that the storm can assail repeatedly, continuously, and, and howl as, as loudly and forcefully as it likes. But this is a truth that will not give way in the darkest days to know what it is to be an adopted child of God. And to be able to say, God knows me. The Lord knows those who are His. As adopted children, whatever is going on, we can be certain our Father loves us. He provides for us. He welcomes us into His presence. He watches over us. And He guards us. An issue you're going to have, again, maybe someone here, I'll speak to you. Others, you may face this in a counseling context. An issue that will arise, I promise you, is this. In the midst of grief and difficult circumstances, the thought that will run through the believer's mind, and they might even articulate on occasion, at times they might even do so vehemently, will be this. If God loved me, why did this happen? Because they see this incongruency between what has happened and the love of God. Now, you don't want to say what I'm about to say to you. We, we need to be sensitive to grief. But we really do need to correct thinking at that juncture. And, and, and encourage people and to bring truth to bear gently 
to help them to understand that they are defining God's love incorrectly. And yet so many believers do. They define God's love on the basis of the day they had yesterday, how the week was going, how they're feeling, how their circumstances are doing. None of those things are an indicator of God's love for His people. Not one of them. God has shown His love at the cross. That's it, my friends. Not on how yesterday went, whether or not all your dreams are coming true, you're able to buy the latest pickup truck, oh, God is good. Nonsense, nonsense, nonsense. None of that is an indicator of the love of God. The love of God has been made manifest in unparalleled, in an unparalleled fashion upon Calvary's cross, where Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. There's the love of God, and we can be absolutely certain, therefore, that God loves us. By looking at our circumstances, no, our circumstances might be wretched. By looking at the cross, we know the Father loves us. As adopted sons, we can trust our Father with the details of our lives. His wisdom isn't our wisdom, His ways aren't our ways, but He is not a distant tyrant. He has our best interest before Him. And as adopted sons, we can wait patiently for our Father's promised inheritance. If we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Hope makes this future certainty a present reality. It reminds us that the best is yet to come. I wish I could remember who said it. I didn't say it, but it is something as follows. The Christian life rarely goes well. But it always ends well. Rarely, rarely does it go well. But it always, always, absolutely, definitely ends well. We hope for what we do not see. And we wait for it with patience. We need to savor. Oh, I noticed three things there with blanks. If our mind... Do you see where I am? Page 5. If our mind is troubled... This is what we need to think on, the doctrine of adoption. We need to think on this. It will bring such stability and steadfastness to life. If our heart is troubled, we need to think on this. It will enable us to rejoice even in the midst of the suffering. If our conscience is troubled, we need to think on this, that our loving Heavenly Father welcomes us, penitent sinners, because He welcomes His beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to savor the sweetness of this single statement. God is our Father. Okay, folks, there you have it. Five truths. Any questions?